Today we enter into the book of Daniel. If you're new here, if it's your first time, or maybe you're still getting to know us, we are in a series where we're preaching through the whole Bible, and we're kind of right smack dab in the middle of it in the book of Daniel. And Daniel takes us deep inside the Babylonian Empire where God's people are living in exile under a foreign power. And the book of Daniel is about God's sovereignty. It's about his sovereignty. And that shouldn't really come as a surprise. Because exile is the very place where God's sovereignty is called into question. It's where his purposes don't make sense. It's where faith in God's promises feels pointless. Exile is where your comforts are removed. All those securities are taken away. Your comforts no longer work. Life is thrown upside down, and all you've got left are those questions, all that confusion, and all of that radio silence from God. And this week's passage is about God's sovereignty and suffering. What do you think about suffering? How does suffering factor into how you think about your faith? important to know for two reasons. One, you will suffer. That's a guarantee. But secondly, and more importantly, what you think about suffering shapes what you think about God. What you think about suffering shapes what you think about God. You know, think of how many times you've heard someone say, how could a good God let this happen? How many times have you wondered that's yourself? Wondering how how can God just stand idly by as I go through this? Doesn't he see me? Am I just invisible to him? How could he let those I love suffer so much? I'd give anything to take it away for them. And so why does he do nothing? How could he let those little girls walk the streets of the Kaligat, surrounded by monsters? Why does he seem so content to meet suffering with silence? Those are the questions that echo out of exile. What you think about suffering shapes what you think about God. And one of the hardest things to do in our faith, and one of the hardest things to do in all of theology is to reconcile God and suffering. And all sorts of answers exist that try to reconcile God and suffering, to try and make sense of it. So some would say that, you know, God doesn't bring about suffering or hardship because he's all good and all loving. And so doing that wouldn't align with his character. But let's be honest, that would just make for a bad parent. So why would it make for a good God? And really, how is that supposed to help in suffering to the sufferer? As I'm supposed to go in three weeks to India and see that woman that I know I will always see. It's a different face, but it's the same situation every time. She's young, alone, abandoned by her husband left with three kids that she can't feed, 
who lives in shame in her surrounding community. I'm supposed to walk up to her and say that God would never do this to you because he's so good and so loving. That just feels off. Others would try to sanitize God's nature by saying, yes, he's all-powerful, and he's omniscient, and he knows that suffering will happen, but he has no hand in it. So the cause, these would say, it's, it's man who causes suffering. God doesn't have anything to do with it. But again, you have to say, really, that explains nothing. If God is omniscient and knew all the suffering that would happen and occur before he ever created the world, then why did he still do it? Or if he doesn't have any hand in suffering whatsoever, why would he create life in the womb of a mother that would just abandon it on the streets? Or create that little life that would have to work alongside her in the rice fields or in the slums or in the landfill if it wants to eat. Or if God knew all that you would suffer, why did he still create you? To say that God is omniscient imposes itself on suffering and it creates a profound tension about his place in it. And so to relieve that tension, there's the view of open theism, which finally just says, you know what? God doesn't actually know the future then. He's no more aware of the future than you or I. It's a theology that believes for God to be good and just, and he can't ordain or orchestrate suffering. He couldn't let injustice fall on the innocent. But since suffering and injustice do exist, then it must mean that God doesn't know the future. Congratulations, all that leaves you with is a God that is just as surprised by suffering when it happens as you are. And all these views try to reconcile God with the reality of suffering. Yet do you see what they really do? By trying to quote unquote, you know, protect God's character. They try to wash his hands for him by distancing him more and more from the reality of suffering. But do you see how the more you distance God from suffering, the smaller you have to make God? Like a little idol crafted by our own imaginations about the divine. Because all that these views leave you with is a God that's either incompetent indifference or ignorant. And these views can't even explain God in the book of Daniel, yet alone the God of the whole Bible. The God of the book of Daniel is a sovereign God who declares the beginning and the end, who works all things according to his purpose. The God who writes our stories our pleasure and our pain, a God who's deeply intertwined with suffering. And a sovereign God can be hard to accept, especially in suffering, because it confronts us with a God that is not as committed to our comfort as we are. It's a God that requires us to give up control. It's a God that doesn't ask our permission. It's a God that invites our trust. It's 
even when it doesn't make sense. And it doesn't add up. And this morning we have a story of suffering. It takes us deep into the heart of Babylon where the people are living in exile under that foreign power. And yet, how did they get to this place? How did they get here? How did they end up living in a foreign land so far away from the promised land? It's because God put them there. That is exactly how the book of Daniel opens up. It says, God gave King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. God brought Nebuchadnezzar with a purpose, to plunder the temple, to burn the city, and to carry off the people into exile. And this was not a random knee-jerk reaction from God because he had a bad day or he was having a pity party. It's been there from the very beginning. If you go all the way back to Deuteronomy 4, God told Israel when they were in the wilderness, he said, when you go into the land that I have prepared for you, if you forget my covenant, if you forget how I rescued you, I redeemed you, I purchased you as my possession, and you start to worship idols and you start to live corruptly, then you can know this, I will scatter you among the nations. I will treat you like Canaanites. And I will drive you from the land. That has always been on the table. And by the time we get to the books of 1 and 2 Kings, Israel is so far down the rabbit hole of idolatry that they don't even know where the book of the law is anymore. They literally all lost their Bible. They were corrupt. They were filled with greed, robbers, thieves, human traffickers and slavers that oppressed the poor, and they had no love for neighbor. And king after king, century after century, this carried on, and it continued to get worse and worse. And then finally, God said, time is up. And he said, time is up by sending a prophet named Jeremiah. And Jeremiah told the people the word of the Lord. He said, I am going to send Nebuchadnezzar to rule over you, and you will go into exile. And by the time Nebuchadnezzar finally came and he surrounded Jerusalem, there were all sorts of false prophets telling Israel that we are going to stand and fight. We can win. We will never, ever serve the king of Babylon. And yet God told the people through Jeremiah, he said, you can fight all you want. But know that I, the Lord God, I fight against you. So you have two options. You can stay in the city and fight. And if you aren't killed by the sword or famine and you survive, then I will give you over into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar who will not spare you, show pity, or have compassion upon you. The other option is you can walk outside the city gates. You can surrender you and your family to Nebuchadnezzar, and you will live. I've set before you life and death. Your move. But in the end, Jerusalem was burned, and a great number of people were carried off into Babylon, and among those exiles carried off were three little boys, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But you know them by their Babylonian names, 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three little boys taken from their home, robbed of the life they had, separated and pulled out from their family, scared, confused, chained. They were placed in Nebuchadnezzar's indoctrination program where they were taught a new language, new customs, new beliefs, new practices, new attire, new actions, new behaviors to be transformed into good Babylonian citizens to support this tyrant in his empire. So how did they get there in the midst of all this suffering and sorrow? It's because it was all going according to God's plan. It's why Daniel starts the way it does. So that you would know who's pulling the strings and who's calling the shots. Now what about you? What does this story tell you about your suffering? Is it just arbitrary and random? Is God just as surprised by it as you are? Or does it come from his sovereign hand? On the one hand, it's hard to accept that God would orchestrate and ordain our suffering and our pain because it forces us to realize he's not committed to the version of life we want for ourselves and his plans for us are not our plans for us. And yet maybe on the other hand, would you let this give you a measure of peace, even though it may feel small, because it says your suffering is not random? Your suffering is not outside of his power. Your suffering is not outside of his plan. Your suffering is not without purpose or meaning. It's the only way of finding out the answer to the great question. How could a good God let all of this happen? Is he really good? Suffering is what makes it hard to believe that a sovereign God writes our stories in love, yet it's the only way to find out if it's true. And so maybe, what if all your suffering is because God wants you to find the answer? What if your whole life just comes down to finding out the answer to that question? Is God really good? And the answer will never be good enough unless it can bear the weight of suffering. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's story, as familiar as we can be with it, for those of us that grew up in Sunday school, it is not just a simple story about refusing to worship an idol. It goes a lot deeper than that. After all that they'd suffered and lost when every hope and dream for what they wanted their life to be was gone, they would have had to wrestle with that very question. In those lonely moments, in those dark, sleepless nights, they would wrestle with that same thing. They are human. Amidst all of my suffering, is this God really good? And years after those three little boys arrived in Babylon in exile, Nebuchadnezzar finished this really massive, great 
magnum opus style construction project. He built an idol 10 stories tall in the plain of Dora. He was the greatest king of the greatest empire that the world had ever seen up to that point in history. He'd conquered nations and kingdoms. Why? Because God gave it all to him. And Jeremiah, that's exactly what God says. He was the one who gave all things into Nebuchadnezzar's hands, even his own people. And when Nebuchadnezzar finished his great idol, he gathered up his people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And he told them, when the music starts playing, you will bow down and worship this idol. And if you do not, then you will be burned alive. You will be thrown into the fiery furnace. This is how the Babylonians conquered. They promised peace. As long as everyone assimilated. They promised peace if all of their subjects believed what they believed. Lived like they lived and worshipped like they worshipped. It's the age-old belief of every authoritarian and tyrant that peace is a product of power. And so when the music started, the masses, as far as the eye could see, they all bowed down. They all paid homage to Nebuchadnezzar and to his gods. Everyone bowed, except three people off in the distance. It was those three little boys, except now they're three grown men, standing tall among the masses. And we know that leading up to this point, God had actually blessed them. He gave them wisdom and knowledge And they excelled beyond all of their peers. And they were given positions of authority and power in the kingdom. And yet, God's blessing also brought suffering. Because it also created enemies that hated them out of jealousy and spite. Working towards their downfall. And now they had their moment. Those enemies came forward to Nebuchadnezzar and they told him that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not bow down. They ignored his words and they did not worship his idol. And this flew Nebuchadnezzar into a rage. And so he orders these three men to be brought to him. And he said, is it true that you won't worship my image or my gods? I'll give you another chance. If you are ready to worship them, then all will be fine and well with you. But if you don't, then you will be thrown into the fiery furnace. And then he asks this great question. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Now, what would your answer have been? As you felt the heat of that furnace on your face. And really, how easy would it have been for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to bow and worship after all that had happened to them. I mean, how many people have you seen turn away whenever suffering happens? They come to a conclusion that says, why hold fast to a God that allowed this to happen or brought me here? Why hold fast to a God that gave Nebuchadnezzar all this power that desecrated my home and took my life from me and brought all of this calamity? Why give everything to a God that has already taken everything from me? But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't worship 
They didn't bow because they came to a completely different conclusion in their suffering. And we know that at some point in time before this, Jeremiah had written a letter to all of these exiles in Babylon. And in it, God told these exiles once again that he was the one who sent them into exile so that they would not forget it. But he also said, I am the one who has not forgotten you. And he told them, after 70 years, I will come to you and I'm going to fulfill my promise. I know the plans I have for you, plans for good, not for evil, to give you a future, to give you a hope. You will look for me, and you will find me, and I will gather you, and I will bring you home. That letter was a simple invitation to these exiles, an invitation where God said to them, Trust and know that I am the God of your suffering, and I'm also the God of your salvation. You can trust that I see you in your suffering. I am writing this story, and it is good because I am good. And that kind of faith is a powerful thing in the midst of suffering. And it's the very faith that we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego express in their answer to Nebuchadnezzar. Because they say, we have no need to answer you in this matter, Nebuchadnezzar. If this is how it has to be, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from, from the fiery furnace. But if not, then know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And when those flames are burning pretty hot, that is an incredible answer. It's incredible faith. Nebuchadnezzar hears this and he flies into a deeper rage and he orders that furnace to be turned up full blast now, seven times hotter. And before the surrounding nations, they watched as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were bound and carried up to the top and they were thrown into the blazing, fiery furnace. No doubt to cheers and applause and a mighty shout from the masses. But then Nebuchadnezzar's stomach hits the floor and his heart skipped a beat when he looked inside of that furnace. And he asked those standing next to him, did we not throw three men into that fire? Yes, my king, it was three men. Then why do I see four men in the fire? Why do I see four men walking around unbound and the fourth is like a son of the gods. Who is that divine figure walking in the fire? When he looked into that furnace, Nebuchadnezzar saw the pre-incarnate Christ staring right back at him. And he'd asked his question, who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? And he found his answer in the furnace. It's the God who walks in fire. It's the God who stands tall in the midst of his suffering people. And where this God shows up in the story makes all the difference in understanding the story. 
Because notice how even though Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's answer expressed such extraordinary, incredible faith, God never extinguished those flames. He never took the fire away. In fact, he let it get seven times hotter. And yet, how often have we heard and how much teaching exists that say, if you just have enough faith, then God is going to remove whatever obstacle or proverbial spiritual mountain that you want him to deliver you from and he'll remove it from your life. And yet you have this story that just flies in the face of such a simplistic interpretation. It invites us into the deep end of the faith where we find God. Because it was their faith that sent them into the fire. It was not their lack of it. And neither was their faith really about those flames being extinguished. Their faith was about something else. Yes, they believed that God had the power to to deliver them. Yes, they believed that God had the power to extinguish those flames and do the miraculous. But their faith didn't stop there. They went much deeper. They said, yes, our God has the power to deliver us from the fiery furnace. But... If not, but if not, we will never bow. Why? Because their faith had moved beyond God's power and ultimately came to rest in his person, in him, in who he is. Their faith believed that he was enough, that he was worthy despite what happened to them, Despite their welfare, despite what they would suffer, they trusted that he was good. They trusted that the God of their suffering will also be the God of their salvation. And so let the fire burn. And how easy is it for us to simply focus our faith on God's power in suffering? We want God to move. We want God to fix this. We want God to change that. We want God to take this away or to make this situation better. But then what happens if he doesn't? We can start to wonder, God, where are you? God, do you care? God, why aren't you doing anything about this? And our faith starts to waver, and it never moves on to the next part of that statement. It never moves deeper. It never says, God, I know that you can change this. But if not, you are worthy of my life. My heart, my devotion, my suffering, whatever happens to me, I trust you. I can't see the good in this, but I trust that you are good. I can't see through all of my confusion, but you are my clarity. You are the God of my heartache and my hope. You are the God of my suffering and the God of my salvation. Belief in God's power is the beginning of faith. But belief in his person and who he is, is the completion of it. And that's a faith that flips the script. Where what you think about God shapes what you think about suffering. So what are you going going through in your life? What suffering are you experiencing? What are those flames that burn so hot and so high? 
with love in my heart, let me just say this. God is probably not going to extinguish the fire. The fire is probably going to burn. I don't say that to discourage you. I don't say that to stop your prayers for deliverance. I don't say that so that you would lose faith. I say that so that your faith might be made complete. So that your faith might be perfected. Because if this story tells you anything, beloved, what if God has sovereignly brought all of this about, not because he wants to extinguish the fire, but because he wants to meet you in the fire? And that's a road that only faith can walk. And that's a road that only faith can travel. And that's a treasure that only faith can find. Part of you might hear that and you think, that is such a tough road to walk. And yes, it is. He's not an easy God to follow, but He is the only God that you can't ignore. Because He was willing to walk that road of faith Himself. And on His last night with His disciples, Jesus told them many, many things. He talked a lot about pain. He talked a lot about suffering, and he said the ruler of this world was coming for him, and he told them that the ruler of this world was coming for them. He told them that the world hated him, and he told them that the world will hate them as well. He told them that in this world, they would have tribulation, but to take heart because he has overcome the world. He told them that he was actually leaving to go and to prepare a place for them, and that he one day would come to them in exile of this world, and he would bring them home. He told them that their sorrow would turn into overwhelming joy. And he said, I'm not telling you all these things so that you lose heart. I'm telling these things so that you may have peace in me, because I will be in the fire. And then Jesus walked into Gethsemane. He got on his knees. The sweat and the blood poured out of his body as he felt the heat of a different kind of fire. Felt the heat on his face of the furnace of God's unmitigated wrath in complete and full justice waiting for him. And in that moment, he walked this same road of faith after all that he'd suffered, and in the face of all that he was about to suffer, he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. I know you have the power, but if not, let your will be done. I entrust myself to you, to your purposes, to your plans, because despite what evil has done to me, you, you are good. He's the, only, <laughs> he's the only God you can't ignore. Why? Because he suffered. And the great mystery of God's goodness is buried deep in his sovereignty. Because the cross is what tells us that God sovereignly wrote a story where he orchestrated his own suffering 
his own murder and his own immolation in the fires of judgment. He wrote a story where he orchestrated all of the events of the cosmos so that he might enter fully into our suffering, so that we might enter fully into his salvation. And the resurrection is the announcement that this God is good beyond measure. This God who walks in fire will not let one ounce of your suffering be for nothing because he's sovereignly writing a story that will transform all of your pain into something precious. And no one will ever be able to take your joy away from you. And he has promised to bring you home. Do you know the God who is with you in the fire? There's one last thing. Why did God orchestrate this story in Babylon? Well, it's because he's still on mission, revealing himself to the world in this moment where the nations were gathered together. And how does he do it? He uses these three men. He uses these, this small little worshiping community inside of a broken empire. So that when the world looked upon this little worshiping community standing side by side, suffering together, the world saw Christ in their midst. And my friends, I'm not sure I could find a better story to express these last weeks for me and for my family. Your love and kindness towards us has been humbling, and through it, we have felt, I have felt, the presence of Christ with us because you were with us. And I'm not saying that hyperbolically. I'm not saying that to exaggerate. I say that in the most genuine possible way that I could. That your willingness to sacrifice and suffer with us has meant that Christ has walked among us. So what does that mean? Well, it means that Perhaps when the surrounding world looks in at Redeemer Rockwall, as they see a worshiping community standing tall, suffering together, may they see our God who walks in fire. For the glory of Christ and the life of the world, let's pray.